Hi there, you're listening to the Unabridged Christian Fiction Audiobook Podcast. I'm your host, Alana Terry, and this season of the Unabridged Podcast is the Terror in the Sky series. This is an unforgettable, fast-paced collection of six novellas that tell you the story of what happens when multiple strangers board a doomed flight. I hope that you enjoy this episode of the Unabridged Christian Fiction Audiobook Podcast. Chapter 14 Justine and West were seated in the same row as a sharply dressed businesswoman in her forties or fifties. The passenger introduced herself as Meredith, then went back to the journal she was writing in. Justine was glad when she saw Grandma Lucy board and find her seat in the very back of the plane. Something about the old lady's pointed questions and intense gaze left Justine feeling terribly uncomfortable. At least they were on the flight. The more she thought about it, the more Justine couldn't shake the feeling she was meant to be here. Did that mean she was meant to visit Alice as well? Justine might not be as into church as her husband was, and she certainly wasn't the type of person to go evangelizing in an airport like Grandma Lucy, but she believed in God and wondered if it was his voice telling her to go to Detroit after all. But why? Did she need some kind of closure with her bio mom? What had the woman done for Justine other than give her birth? It was because of Alice's murderous rage that Justine had spent years in the foster system before getting adopted. It was because of Alice's notorious mental illness that Justine had spent years in therapy, paralyzed with fear that the monster that had taken over her biological mother might be lying dormant in her as well. Why did her husband, God, and the entire universe seem to be conspiring to get Justine to visit this woman? Alice was unhealthy. Steve had let it slip. Justine had no idea her husband was in communication with that felon. Why in the world hadn't he told her sooner? But Alice was sick, maybe even dying. She wanted to see Justine. The trip had made sense when Steve first arranged it. A family trip to Detroit. See some of the area Justine remembered before her adoptive family moved to the East Coast. Take West to the Children's Museum and the zoo. But now, with Steve working, there was nothing about this trip that felt like a vacation. And yet, here she was. You chose this, Justine reminded herself. She and West could have walked out of the airport. They'd been close to doing so when Grandma Lucy grabbed a hold of them. Justine wasn't some prisoner being held hostage on a flight she hadn't agreed to take. She was here because, at some point, she and Steve agreed it would be a good idea, and at some point in the past hour, a fluke encounter with a stranger in the airport made Justine change her mind about going back home with West. She was meant to be on this flight. She knew it. But that didn't mean she wasn't worried. What would Alice say to her? What if Justine met her mother, saw her infamous insanity up close, 
and that woke up the dormant demons she'd inherited from that monster. She wouldn't let West come anywhere near his grandmother, but what if this trip had some kind of negative impact on him anyway? Alice's negative energy seeping into her son. She was overthinking things. She had to stop. The flight attendant began her safety speech about seatbacks and tray tables. Justine checked West's seatbelt to make sure it was buckled snugly, then shut her eyes, let out a deep breath, and tried to force her anxious body to relax. Chapter 15 He died on a Tuesday. I remember it was Tuesday because that was the only morning he went into work a little later, not hours before the sun rose. He couldn't find the cufflinks he wanted, thought I'd left home and sold them, accused me of pilfering money away so I could leave him, even suggested I'd given them as a present to a secret lover. He was raving around the house, shouting like a lunatic, throwing drawers open, telling me he'd find my stash of cash and kill me. You were asleep in your room. You poor, sweet angel. You'd learn to sleep through anything. As hard as life was for us, you were a happy little girl. You were chubby once you started growing as a baby. But as soon as you learned to walk, your muscles turned lean. I think you spent one day toddling, and after that, you took off running, running through the house, laughing, yelling, giggling. You had no idea your father was a monster. You had no idea your mother was insane. You were blissfully unaware of the danger we were in. But I wasn't. The truth was, I hadn't sold your father's cufflinks, but I had been making plans. You'd gotten an ear infection right after your birthday. I took you to the doctor. Your father came, too, didn't trust me out of the house with you. He was afraid I'd run off. But he couldn't follow me into the bathroom at the children's clinic. That's where I saw the poster. A toll-free number to call if you were in an abusive relationship. I didn't have a pen or paper. Your father didn't let me travel with those. He was too scared I'd write someone a note begging for help, and then the picture-perfect prison he'd created for me and you would collapse and crumble around his feet. I didn't have a pen, but I had my mind, and I stared at that poster, burned the numbers into my head. I couldn't use the home phone to call for help, but I knew if I kept that number memorized, I'd make sure that once I got the chance, I'd use a payphone. One day, I was certain your father would slip up. He'd stop for gas when I was in the car and run in to use the bathroom, and I could jump out and race to a payphone. Or he'd forget to lock us in the house like he always did when he left for work, and I'd walk nonchalantly over to the neighbor's and asked to borrow their phone. I knew my fantasies were stupid, knew your father would never be so careless, but memorizing the number made me feel strong, made me feel brave. At night, I'd lie awake holding imaginary phone conversations in my head, telling the compassionate woman who answered the toll-free number 
that my husband kept my daughter and me locked in our house, that a year ago he'd killed our au pair and had managed to do so without raising a shred of suspicion, that he kept me placid and compliant by threatening to kill our daughter, this perfect little angel who was the only reason I had to live. I'd tell her about the drugs. He says I'm crazy, I whispered in my mind, but I never had any problems like this before we got together. And she'd explain to me what deep in my soul I already knew. I wasn't insane. I wasn't psychotic. The drugs were part of my prison. With them, Dennis knew I couldn't think clearly, couldn't fight back. You should stop taking those pills, the imaginary woman would tell me. And so I did. Dennis didn't find my stash of cash that morning. He didn't find any love letters linking me to this imaginary lover. He didn't find the cufflinks he was sure I'd stolen. What he found was much, much worse. Chapter 16 Justine was thankful that West was on good behavior. He ate a few snacks, then settled down to watch an in-flight movie. The relative calm gave Justine the chance to relax. Unfortunately, it also gave her the chance to be alone with her thoughts. As each minute brought their plane closer and closer to Detroit, Justine felt the stone in the base of her gut churning, growing sour. She had to consciously focus on her breaths to keep from hyperventilating. Just because you share her genes doesn't mean you're going to become anything like her, Steve had told her years ago. Justine was pregnant, terrified that she would turn into the same kind of monster as her mom. And thankfully, for then at least, Steve had been right. Justine's transition into motherhood was one of the most blissful, delightful surprises that had ever happened to her as natural and as powerful as falling in love. As it turned out, she wasn't defined by her genes. When West was an infant, she held her breath, wondering if her descent into insanity would take her by storm the second her son started crawling or walking or speaking. And then West turned one, and next two. Still no depression, no hint of psychosis. The anxiety was always there, but not to the point where Justine couldn't control it. By West's third birthday, Justine felt like she could finally let out her breath. She'd made it, hadn't attacked her child or her husband, hadn't slipped into a murderous psychotic rage and tried to destroy the ones she loved most. At that point, she gave herself permission to stop worrying so much, permission to forget about the woman who brought her into the world. And then, a few months ago, Steve told her Alice had contacted him. She's changed, he told her, his eyes and tone begging her to believe him. She couldn't understand. Why in the world did he want her to give this woman any chance to get close to her or her family? Even the fact that Alice had contacted Steve should show she was just as manipulative and conniving as she'd always been. Why hadn't she contacted Justine directly if she really wanted to talk? 
In the end, Justine attributed her husband's actions to his newfound faith. Didn't Christians believe in grace and forgiveness at all costs? It wasn't until she'd had that dream that she even considered making the trip to Detroit like Steve was pushing her. It was just before Halloween. Justine had volunteered all day for the costume party at West's preschool. She was tired, a little grumpy. The next day was Sunday, and she knew her husband would try to wake them up early to go to church. Couldn't she sleep in just one day of the week? That night, she dreamed that she saw Alice trapped in some kind of haunted carnival ride. Her mother was screaming for help, begging for Justine to find her, to save her. Inside the mansion was nothing but mirrors. Each time Justine thought she saw Alice's face, it was her own image staring back at her. Until she got to the far wall. She saw the door, knew she had to open it, knew she was going to open it, knew that once she did open it, her life would be ruined. Even as she sat next to her son on the flight to Detroit, she could remember staring at her own hand as it reached out for the doorknob, slowly turned and pushed it open. Alice was inside, her clothes covered in blood, her face distorted by both insanity and rage. The knife in her hand was dripping, disgusting. The body at her feet wasn't Justine's father. It was her son. She'd woken up screaming for West. Even when Steve tried to calm her down, she couldn't stop hyperventilating until she brought her son into bed with them, held him in her arms. Even once she'd managed to convince her logical brain that West was safe, she still couldn't control her breathing, couldn't stop her arms from trembling, her mind from replaying the sense of foreboding she felt as she pushed open that door. I think you need to see her, Steve told her the next morning. She thought he was the crazy one until her therapist repeated the exact same sentiment the following day. Justine still wasn't convinced. It wasn't until a few weeks later when she had another dream, the one that finally changed her mind. It was the same haunted castle, the same freaky mirrors. But there was no door this time, no bloody knife, no stabbed son. Instead, it was Alice, lying on a bed, holding a little doll and crying. Where'd she go? She wailed over and over. She reached out her arms, and for a split second, Justine wanted nothing more than to bury her head against this frightened woman's chest and tell her everything was okay. Where'd she go? Alice repeated, her voice so pitiable Justine woke up with tears on her cheeks. I think you need to see her, Steve repeated the following day and Justine knew he was right. Now, she wasn't so sure. In her early twenties, Justine had pored over every single newspaper article she could find dating back to her father's murder. He'd been a beloved TV reporter, which meant the trial made national news. The story had every ingredient of a good scandal for the time. Her father was white, handsome, somewhat famous, 
and several decades older than Alice. Alice was black, young, and beautiful, with well-documented mental instabilities and quite a few motives to kill her aging husband. Before their wedding, Alice had fallen into a heap of financial troubles, financial troubles that all went away the moment she signed her marriage license. As far as the public was concerned, Alice had every reason to be profusely grateful to her husband, who gave her every material possession she could desire, as well as the best medical care for her mental illness that money and fame could buy. But she wanted more. A jury member said that he probably would have acquitted her if it hadn't been for the fact that Alice had taken out three separate life policies on both her husband and their daughter just a week before the killing. That and the fact that the detectives found letters from a secret lover, a lover urging Justine to end her marriage and live with him forever. Justine read the reports and realized her mother wasn't just greedy and insane, she was also stupid. Fringe groups still believed Alice when she upheld her innocence, in spite of all the evidence against her, her well-documented mental disorder, her secret lover, the multiple life insurance policies. Alice's supporters argued that the all-white jury and the racial tensions of the time would have made it nearly impossible for her to get a fair trial. And yet her sentence was upheld after multiple appeals, her requests for parole were repeatedly denied, and Alice was doomed to spend the rest of her life behind bars. Justine didn't want to admit it to herself, didn't want to sound like an ignorant child unable to look at reason. The facts of the trial could hardly be any clearer. Alice had killed her husband. She had even attacked Justine. The scar on Justine's thigh where the knife blade went into her leg was a daily reminder of her mother's criminal insanity. And yet, Justine had to wonder. It was a question she'd never dared to mention to Steve, to her therapist, even to herself except for when she was at her most open, her most honest, her most raw. Part of Justine wanted to visit Alice. Part of Justine wanted to hear her mother's side of the story. Part of Justine was dying to believe her mom was as innocent as she claimed. Thanks for listening to the Unabridged Christian Fiction Audiobook Podcast. This has been the Terror in the Skies series written by me, Alana Terry, and narrated by Becky Dowdy. If you want to listen to or read this entire series without interruptions, you can look for the Terror in the Skies series by Alana Terry wherever you shop for ebooks, paperbacks, or audiobooks.